You're listening to Future Ready through M&A. I'm your host, Scott Slater. Today on our show, we're going to talk about the nuts and bolts of M&A. How does it actually all work? What are the steps you need to take from finding a partner to signing the paperwork? Plus, we'll chat with Elizabeth Nesvold, founder and managing partner at New York-based Silver Lane Advisors. Liz will bring us her unique perspective on the field and how she's seen it grow. My discussion with advisors over many years leads me to the conclusion that, for most, M&A remains a mystery. And this often comes up when an advisor is approached about selling his or her firm, and then suddenly, things are off and running. The emotions are high for many, and this is a business that has consumed heart and soul for many years, and now they're confronted with an important decision, an attractive financial offer. Or firms speak to me about developing a tuck-in strategy for their business, to bring on advisors who want more support or are looking to exit. They ask about valuation and equity and deal structure. And then, of course, we have significant amounts of capital today driving large strategic deals. So it's important for advisors to understand just how M&A works. The vast majority of the independent wealth space has little practical grasp of this process, and deal-making in general is different than building and running a wealth management business. Yes, it's important to understand what outcome you seek. Many of you hear me speak of that imperative frequently, and in an ideal world, that's the right place to start. But it's also critical to understand that process. In our discussion today with Liz Nesvold, founder and managing partner at New York-based investment bank Silver Lane Advisors, will shed light on the key elements, whether you are a brand new to this process or an experienced dealmaker. First, let me share a few of my thoughts on this subject. I'd begin by taking the time to educate yourself on the basics. Of course, we all hear a lot about valuation methodologies. We hear about revenue multiples and various profitability multiples, such as EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, or EBOC, earnings before owner's comp, and understanding what influences value, understanding what a discount rate is and how that's determined. Deal structure is the other side of valuation, And first, understanding it from a financial standpoint. How much cash is uh, being offered up front? How much is in equity? And what are the risks and trade-offs that I should understand with that? What's the earn-out time frame for the remaining portion of it? And how can I influence that? And what actions do I need to take to make sure that I maximize that? What are buyer preferences? And how will that influence this? In other words, think about things. What happens if things go wrong? Or maybe not go wrong, but just not as swimmingly as everyone might like. So who decides what, and how does control change, and who gets paid first if things aren't quite as as, uh, rosy as we first expect? Buyer motivation. You know, we hear a lot about strategic buyers and financial buyers. What is the difference between the two? And I think I'm beginning to understand those. And when is it that uh, we're trying to create a business of scale, so we're taking cost out of of the business? What's the purpose that the buyer is looking for? Documentation. You know, we're going to talk a little bit today about the term sheet, But it's much more complex than just knowing the key elements of the deal you've negotiated because all of a sudden you're going to be presented with maybe a 100-page document that is ultimately going to determine the future of the business on either side that you're going to be on. Well, what's in that documentation and how can I make sure I understand it and I'm comfortable with it? What are the key stages and steps in the process and how do I know where I am and what can often be a very emotional process? And what are some of the advisors in the area of M&A, and what do they do, and what don't they do? Investment bankers, lawyers, transition consultants, individuals like that, they can play a major influence and help advisors, especially financial advisors who are new to this process, 
to make the best decisions, whether they are on a buyer or a seller side of the equation. So take the time to educate yourself on these basics. Second, an easy way to do this is do some reading. And I don't mean just trade journals or, and reading about recent transactions, although definitely do that to keep up with the trends that are happening. But read up on valuation and deal structure to understand how the process works. One example I would suggest is actually Liz Nesvold's book, which she wrote with her husband, Peter Nesvold, entitled The Art of M&A Valuation and Modeling. A book such as Liz's demystifies the process for us. Third, let's recognize that M&A is highly emotional and it gets people, particularly inexperienced sellers, out of their comfort zone. So recognize that. Recognize that. Remember that education and using trusted, competent outside advisors helps to reduce anxiety, but it's not going to eliminate it. The old M&A adage is true. Time kills deals. There is a lot of energy in a transaction, so understanding what you and your partners want out of it is important when you're in the middle of the process, whether you're selling or buying. And both parties are trying to manage their risk. Finally, I do encourage advisors to use outside advisors who understand the M&A process to help you through this and navigate it successfully and to negotiate more effectively. And finally, yes, then do go back to the fundamental question. What is the outcome that you do seek for your business, for your partners, for your employees, and for your clients? There are more options out there today than ever for you to consider what you want to do with your business and whom you would like to partner with to create great businesses to serve investors even more effectively than ever and to have a great time doing it. But what I encourage you to do is prepare yourself and let's spend some time now listening to what Liz has to say about how to best do that. Our guest for this episode of the show is Elizabeth Nesvold, founder and managing partner at Silver Lane Advisors. I asked her first how she's seen the landscape change over the course of her career. I would say one of the single most exciting changes is probably optionality in terms of solutions for liquidity or partnership. Back when I started in the business, and my daughter always says the dinosaurs roam the earth, there were pretty much three flavors of ice cream if you were thinking about selling your uh, RIA. You were either selling to a bank, and that was a local bank, you were selling to the local brokerage firm, or you might be looking for someone to take over the business, and maybe it was a really long payout or sell down, much like if you were buying into a dental practice. And candidly, the third option was pretty rare. Today, what is wonderful is there are more solutions than ever. We've got financial holding companies that are public and private. We've got strategic acquirers. There are banks. There are private equity firms. There are smaller firms doing cashless exchanges. Sometimes there are family offices making uh, minority investments. There are senior debt providers. There are mezzanine providers. So we really have an exciting uh, opportunity to create a, a range of liquidity solutions. Well, that's great. You know, it does remind me a little bit of what I experience sometimes when I go into Home Depot on Saturday with no plan. Look at all this great stuff here, and maybe I need that drill. You spend $500 on the way out. And, and with not a real plan. So a lot of that actually sounds, while it's exciting with all that optionality, it also sounds a little intimidating for a lot of people in our industry and our audience. Um, how do you see that, too, and, and, and how are advisors reacting to it? both the opportunity, but also trying to figure it all out with all those different 
possible buyers? There is just so much to contemplate and think about and a lot of noise out there in the media. It's hard to know where to even begin. So often people are looking at solutions that are right in front of them and they just don't know how to find things that may not be knocking on their doorstep, if you will. It's also more complicated than ever. You have a lot of things to contemplate in terms of regulatory, uh, cybersecurity, technology elements, integration elements, um, structuring the deal, tax considerations. Are you creating a structure that is tax advantageous or uh, creating more tax obligation than you necessarily intended? So it's, it's an awful uh, complicated uh, pathway to liquidity today. But on the flip side, there are a lot of things that uh, are more beneficial today than ever before, including the after-tax proceeds, the tax structuring, all of those elements that I just referenced. Good. Actually, and those are some of the, I w- would like to come back to those in, a little later as we get into some of the specifics. You know, what I find in my consulting work with advisors, I spend a lot of time emphasizing the importance of what's your desired outcome for your firm's M&A strategy, and even for an individual transaction. Why are you doing this transaction? Or what result are you seeking for the business? Liz, how do you see this as you work with firms and and advisors? I think it kind of builds on the question that you just, just raised, too. Establishing the transaction objectives and really the partner criteria is so critical Not enough sellers, and frankly, even buyers, take the time out to frame out what are we trying to accomplish here today. And there are so many elements to consider. So no matter what type of entity, you need to think about what kind of partner are you looking for? Is it one that shares your vision for the firm? Is it a willingness to support the client service model that you have today? Is it somebody who's willing to reinvest in your growth initiatives? There are so many things to check. Uh, It's almost like um, back to the shopping list. You want to think through very carefully as opposed to randomly walking into Home Depot or Target where invariably I will spend a ton of money and buy things that I didn't need. You want to think through carefully what should be on that list. What's important? How do we prioritize? So things like on the transactional side, what are we trying to accomplish? Is it liquidity for one partner? Are we really trying to create liquidity across the board? Or are we trying to really reacquitize the firm to provide a little liquidity, but bring some younger partners up into the mix? Trying to facilitate that kind of transaction is very different from a founder who really hasn't identified his next generation successor and is looking for a retirement plan. Two very different scenarios, two very different type of uh, opportunity sets in terms of financing or, or partner solutions. So making sure you frame out the objectives is critical. And then really working through, if there are multiple partners, making sure that you're all on the same page. Well, that's great. And as a matter of fact, one of the things our earlier episodes with Mark Hurley and Marty Bicknell have addressed these very issues, and I think it's important. So I do think that's at the center, that that people really do take the time to figure out what are your priorities and what's the outcome you look for. At the same time, you know, let me ask one other question around that, actually. 
You've worked with hundreds of businesses and helped with some of the most visible transactions in our industry over the last couple decades now. What makes for a good independent wealth management business from your experience? And I would put that in both a, a quantitative terms, but also qualitatively. What, what makes for a great business? You know, there are a number of, as you mentioned, both qualitative and quantitative factors that make for a great business. And it, it doesn't necessarily have to be about size. Um, so bigger isn't necessarily better. But when you think about it, this is a, a highly intangible industry and asset base that we're dealing with. So the first thing that makes a business an attractive business is its people. So do you have a deep bench in terms of management, leadership? Do you have a deep bench in terms of investment talent? Are people backdooring you at the employee level as quickly as you're rehiring for those positions? So is there really a continuity of the employee base? or is there too much turnover? Is the brand known locally? Uh, And brand recognition is hard in a highly fragmented industry, but how are you perceived in the marketplace? On the service offering, is this something that is well received by the clientele? Is the client base actually saying, hey, uh, we love what you do, but we'd really love it if you would expand to fill-in-the-blank financial planning or estate planning, would love if you had trust services. So is that part of um, your offering or, or do you really have what the client base really is clamoring for? Is the process repeatable? Is it systematic? Does everybody in the firm understand what their contribution is for the client engagement? Do the clients feel like they understand that? You know, is it uh, tight operations? strong technology, you're reinvesting in the business, no regulatory infractions. One key thing that certainly drives value and makes for a good business is demonstrable growth, right? Is there a great track record of growing revenues, growing profitability? Great. So it it really does, I mean, there's a lot you listed there. I would say some of the things that uh, seem to be the most important are going to be, are you growing? Do you have the right talent, both advisor talent and leadership talent, and are you running a systematic business? And I do think the issue you brought up around brand is a very critical one, too, as we go forward. So it really is about building a more scalable business, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And and, and it really is hard to build a scalable business in one that requires so much human capital. But you, if you're doing as best as you can with technology and processes and uh, minimizing redundancies, I think that's that's a positive thing for building scale. All right. Well, let's go on to, uh, I think, an important part of, of our section today the, of understanding just how M&A works, you know, what the process is and how an advisor can prepare to get a better result. First, let me ask, what, what do you find are the things that tend to trip up many people when they go through the M&A process? Oh, boy. You know, it. I wrote an article years ago for selling the family business, and it was really geared toward uh, just a private family-owned business. And I talked a little bit about planting the for sale by owner sign on the lawn. Uh, I think often they do it without good advice. And if you've never done it before, how do you know you're going to get the best outcome? So sometimes it's just having the right counsel, and it could be a banker, it could be a business broker, it could be uh, having good counsel who's taken other firms through the process. You need good advice, number one. 
Number two, they've just not been through the process that they don't know what to expect and where to devote their energies. So I think really understanding the elements of the process, where you can do it yourself if you're, you're intending on doing that, and where you need to bring in expertise is critical. Are there any particular things that you see, if there, was, if there are some consistencies to this, of when deals don't happen, when they fall apart? Are there any kind of trends as to why they fall apart in our business? You know, often it's because people aren't listening. They're not listening to the other side. They're not listening to their partners. They've lost momentum. They don't know how to pick back up. They're overreaching in terms of deal economic elements or they're not willing to accept things that are very market standard in terms of the legal aspects of the deal. So it's scary when you get to the paperwork portion of our show here. Um, you're going to look at a, a purchase agreement that has you know, 80, 90 pages to it and it's going to talk about the business as if you know, you've done something wrong and you're making representations and warranties and those are scary, but you know your business. You know if there's a skeleton in the closet, when you open up, it's going to fall out. And so what somebody on the other side is looking for is some protection and things that are market standard. And that's where often people get tripped up on what is usual and customary versus what is out of bounds and overreaching, both on the business terms and also on the legal terms. And that's, that's part of the scary um, part of the process, if you will. Sure. So it is some of the things we're going to be talking about is exactly where they're just uncomfortable with some of the issues. You know, you mentioned something a minute ago about losing momentum. Can you say a little bit more about that, what, what you see there? <laughs> I have a story on that. We had a, and I hope this client isn't listening, we had a wonderful firm that was growing like gangbusters. And we had, uh, it was a highly sought after company. And the founder um, was a, a very much of a control person, so nothing could get done without his oversight. He went on four vacations during our process, including the Galapagos Islands, where he needed a sat phone so I could reach him. And we lost momentum with some of the parties uh, because they felt like we weren't engaged enough in trying to transact. And he and his firm lost their footing, and they had some material clients um, backdoor them. So they lost some business, and the valuation uh, and structuring began to falter. So you have to find that. It's a, a long-winded way of saying you need a sense of urgency, but obviously you want to balance that by being thoughtful and methodical about the diligence process, about the dating process, making sure that you're across the table from someone that you think shares your values and understands the nuances of your employee base and your client base. So you have to have that balance and you have to do your proper homework. But, uh, you know, without a sense of urgency for uh, completing um, a mission or mandate, if you will, people on the other side can just get tired and get tired and just say, you know what? This is a flaky owner. This is a flaky deal. I'm going to move on to the next one. Yeah. So would you summarize it then? I mean, what's what's the message then for advisors that once you begin discussions, you know, stay at it, recognize it's going to take time, but stay at it and uh, and show that sense of urgency. That seems to be your message. 
It is, and, and that really does come back to your earlier question, which is, you know, what does the timetable look like? What are the steps to get me from, you know, start of this journey to completion? And so we have, uh, we show our clients a, a timetable when we first engage with them so they understand some of the material elements of, of what's going to happen during the process and where they'll be involved. And we might show them, I think it's something like, you know, 14 to 16 steps and we plot out the time frame and how long it will typically take to hit certain milestones. Beneath that, we have probably 144 steps that roll up into those 14 or 16 steps. And that's what we need to get completed um, at each uh, stage of the engagement with the client or with uh, market participants. So really having a sense for what does it take to make sure this journey has a successful outcome and you know from getting organized pulling materials together both in terms of uh, you know who you are and what you're trying to accomplish and the required diligence materials that somebody would need versus spending the time to identify you know your partner criteria and what's important to you then uh, trying to interface with those parties that you think will measure up in terms of that uh, dating list if you will and thinking about how, how do you solicit indications of interest, how do you analyze those bids when they come back in, how do you move somebody to the next level and say, okay, I've met with a number of parties, I like you three, I wanna spend time with you, um, we're gonna do some management meetings, I want you to know my people and I wanna know your people, doing on-site visits to make sure you have a perspective of how somebody on the other side lives and breathes on a, a professional basis, then how do we begin to set the terms for this transaction? Do we need somebody to help out negotiating the LOI? What kind of disclosure schedules do we have to have in place? When do we do uh, return due diligence for the, the seller vetting a buyer if I'm on the sell side? What does the documentation look like? Are we going to enter into a joint operating agreement? What does the client consent process look like? Making sure that you have a very good perspective on what the journey looks like is important because then it's easier to start navigating those steps and determining when you need some outside help and, and when you can do it yourself. Great, well, that's, that's really helpful. Well, let, let's actually, let's dig into this a little bit and let's see if we can break this down. You know, first, let's let's discuss that all-important valuation term uh, that we all seem to be, that dominates the initial discussion, and understandably, many are focused there. Explain to us how a valuation is determined and what the variables are. And I, I would say related to that, how can a firm improve over time their potential valuation? Well, we, we've spent some time talking about some of the qualitative aspects, and they really do factor into value. But there's no question there are financial metrics that will change the way value is constructed for a particular firm. So when we're looking at a valuation, there are uh, certain current aspects of a business that we measure, and then there are those aspects that we try to predict in terms of the growth profile of a firm. So if a firm has generated a good level of assets, we try to assess the fee component. Is this fee 
high relative to the marketplace. So we're talking about fee basis if it's a fee-only advisor, or are they high relative to the market or are they below market? So if it's high relative to the market, given the service offering, then if I'm sitting on the valuation side or a buyer side, I'm gonna worry about fee compression. If they're low relative to the market, I might see that as an opportunity to improve the uh, level of fees and thus the revenues. Revenues are are the next step, obviously. Um, Fee basis on assets create revenues. We try to decompose the revenues and understand what really makes up the aggregate revenues. Is it any transactional fees that we need to be mindful of? Is it really fees on assets? Is there tax planning that uh, is more fixed fee based? Uh, Do they do accounting uh, in terms of the tax prep? So are there components of fixed fee that won't grow the same way? We've got to assess that as well. And then you've got to spend the time to look at the expense um, base of the business, what's variable versus what is fixed, and how does that drive profitability? You and I have spoken before about businesses that look nice on paper, but they're really not driving profitability. And the question is, is there value there? As long as you have clients that are happy and engaged and people who are running the business, you have a franchise with a franchise value. In that instance, the valuation may be higher or lower depending on the situation. So if it's a, you know, somebody who's looking to purely finance an investment and there's no profitability, it's hard to put in a level of financing that may be commensurate with somebody's view of valuation. On the flip side, valuation can change dramatically if it is a partner that can bring some efficiencies to bear and essentially help that level of profitability. So it's fair to say that um, even though I think we often hear advisors, especially new to this process, talk in terms of revenue multiples, that's not a meaningful way to value a business. And that's that's not what happens today. Isn't that true? That is true. That's true. Uh, invariably, Any investor, whether they are strategic or financial, needs to drive a return out of a deal. It's hard to drive a return out of a deal if it's only revenues. Even if it's a revenue share and that's the basis for your return, you still have to understand the the business and whether or not they can continue to reinvest in the business if you're taking a share of those revenues. So profits matter. They really do. Uh, Essentially, Strong qualitative attributes can lead to a business that's capable of generating good recurring revenue streams and invariably attractive operating margins. And that's really what somebody is looking for is a business that can drive value for bottom line activity. It doesn't mean that, again, um, there is no value in the revenues alone, but the basis for most structuring and, and value is a function of the EBITDA of the business. Um, What level of EBITDA are you generating today or on a normalized basis are you capable of generating? And it's not a point-in-time measurement. Yep. No, sure. That's very helpful. Actually, in in our industry, too, we're hearing, we sometimes hear terms in terms of profitability metrics of EBITDA, of course, but we're also hearing EBOC, earnings before owner's comp. What's the difference between the two, and what should advisors understand when they begin to hear that? Um, That's a really good question. Um, EBOC uh, is uh, a a term that a few buyers in the marketplace will use, and they use it 
as a function of the structure and how they effectively acquire business. So let's, let's take two businesses. Both have $10 in revenues. Both have $5 in EBOC earnings before owner's comp. Uh, one has five partners and one has one partner. Um, which business is worth more? If you put a multiple on EBOC that is the same for both businesses, in one instance, you may be overvaluing a firm, and that's the one with five partners. And in the other instance, you may be undervaluing that firm. So you just have to be careful in terms of how you apply those metrics. It doesn't mean that somebody who uses a measure of EBOC as valuation is necessarily bad. It could be absolutely right for their model, but you need to understand the nuances of the model to make sure you can assess the comparability of a buyer of EBOC versus a buyer of EBITDA. Tell us a little bit about what is the discount rate and how is that determined in our industry? The discount rate is invariably a tool that someone will use to understand either the time value of money on a proposal, or it may be my own hurdle rate as a buyer that um, I'm trying to assess, is this a good deal? If I have a, a discount rate of, let's say, 10% and you're paying me um, $1 today of franchise value and $1 for each of the next 10 years, the nominal value could be, in that instance, $11, but the present value with that 10% discount rate could be markedly different. Um, so for me as a seller, I need to think about what my own personal discount rate might be as I'm trying to assess the present value of transactional proceeds. As a buyer, I'm really trying to measure up a deal relative to the discount rate. I'm trying to think about what level of return do I need on this transaction, and if I can't achieve that level of return, even if I like the people, it's probably not the right deal, or it's probably not the right structure. So it's a, it's a measure to figure out return profile, and it's also a measure to figure out um, the present value of proceeds to a particular seller. And that's an important element, too, in, in just say in an internal succession deal for, uh, for selling to internal partners, because you have, you know, on one level, you have, you could argue, less risk because you know who the players are. But on the other side, those people have, you know, kind of an illiquidity in terms of what they own and a minority share and some of those elements. So that really plays into it too, doesn't it? When you're contemplating an internal sale, you need to think about the people with whom you're transacting. And these are people who've helped build franchise value over the years, presumably. So in an internal sale, there's that element of how much am I going to ask that these people fund up front? And how much will I be willing to let them fund over time? And are they financing externally, or am I effectively financing them? So if you think about um, that personal discount rate, if it's an external buyer who's going to control certain aspects of the business, I might have a higher personal requirement um, for a discount rate than I would internally because I'm going to continue with the business. It's the younger partners who've grown up in the business under my leadership so maybe I'm willing to give them some seller financing for a portion of value, and I'm going to do it over a number of years, and I'm going to effectively give them a note at a much lower discount rate or much lower uh, yield than they'd be able to find in the marketplace or that I might require with someone else. 
because I'm going to be able to customize and tailor those terms, I'm probably going to stay actively involved in some of the decision making. So I will still have some elements of control in that particular situation. So you're effectively going to make a concession on that discount rate or on the on the rate at which you will provide your seller financing to your next generation. You know, in any business, um, owners often consider their business to be worth a lot more than it objectively is, and I think that happens a lot in this space, too. Uh, What's your advice to advisors on this issue? You know, this is a tough one because we're at the, uh, I guess, have we begun? We're in the 10th year of a bull market. So everybody's baby is extremely beautiful. We appreciate that. But you have to find fair value. So comparing yourself or your business to something that is dramatically larger or faster growing or has a deeper bench or a different profile of clientele isn't a particularly a comparable metric. And the, the issue we're seeing today is that there's, there are numbers that are floating out there that just aren't representative of most of the businesses. Now again, there's always fair value. Uh, every business has a valuation. And if you are able to continue to grow your business, you should reap a more fulsome valuation. If your business is in decline mode, invariably that might indicate a lower valuation or a contracting value. But it's, it's hard to listen to the noise out there. Truth is, it's not a point in time valuation that we're really trying to assess. We're trying to think about the context of the full structure. So I might tell you, you're worth $20 million, but if I tell you I'm going to pay you $1 million today and $19 million in seven years, but you got to double your business, you're really not worth $20 million, and you're definitely not worth $20 million on a present value basis. So you have to look at structure as it relates to the valuation, and that's critically important. The valuation range is about as big as it it ever has been. I mean, you truly could drive a Mack truck through it. And that's really part of the, uh, everybody always wants, you know, a a multiple. So can you provide me a multiple of revenues that I'm worth or a multiple of um, EBITDA that is a good estimate? Again, if I said you're worth 10 times EBITDA, you know, that is a point in time. So there's a there's an old um, adage that says, um, you name the price and I'll set the terms. So you may say I'm worth 10 times EBITDA, but that's you've set the price, now I'm gonna set the terms. I will pay you that 10 times EBITDA, but here's the structure under which I will give it to you. And that could be growth required, and it should be, frankly, for a firm that would be worth 10 times EBITDA. You should be growing nicely organically and not just through market. But the terms matter so much in terms of valuation. So, you know, if I said to you the range of revenue multiples was one to four times revenues, that is a very big gaping hole. But invariably, the firm with four times revenues as a valuation probably has a high level of profitability relative to the competitors. I told you the range of EBITDA multiples was somewhere between 5 and, and 11 times EBITDA, then we're going to say the same thing. Uh, the firm at, at 10 or 11 times EBITDA is growing organically, has a deep bench, has shown that they can be scalable, It's probably dominant in the market geography, has everything going on for it, versus the firm that is at five times 
might really have a founder uh, next generation dilemma and might actually have lost some business, still has good value, but um, it's a different dynamic in terms of uh, EBITDA multiple price points. Sure. It's kind of the, the nicest house on the block syndrome a little bit. I think it does play to that. Let's go to the other side of that equation then, uh, because the other side of valuation is deal structure. And I think you've mentioned that it's, it's becoming more complex in a lot of transactions today. And I'd just like to briefly address some of them from what are the most important variables and considerations in structure that you see today? In terms of the um, percent, let's say, again, we've, we've agreed to evaluation, how much should I look at upfront versus overtime depends on the situation. So let's say I am selling a business that I'm not active in. I'm more likely to look for more of my proceeds paid upfront as opposed to overtime because if I am exiting the business, or let's say it's a bank that owned an RIA and they're um, completely exiting out of that business, then I'm going to probably want as much, if not all, of my proceeds up front. And 100% or 80% up front is rare. Um, and what happens there is it takes its toll on the valuation. So if you've told me that, and that's something that every seller should think about up front, if I'm, I'm growing quickly, I shouldn't ask for 100% or 80% upfront because I'm going to get a real haircut on the valuation multiple. On the flip side, if I'm not going to continue to operate the business, then I want to risk mitigate. I'm willing to take more proceeds upfront in exchange for a lower valuation. But I would say if we've concluded a reasonable exercise on, on valuation, I'm going to continue on with the business. Depending on growth profile, I might look at 50 to 80% paid up front with the balance over time. So again, the more you ask for up front, the more likely it is the, the guy or gal on the other side is going to discount at what multiple they'll set the valuation because you're not giving them a lot of room to risk mitigate in case you know, you've been growing at 15%. What if you stop growing at 15%? You've been steady state for years. What if clients start backdooring you because you've sold your business? So that tends to be the range, 50 to 80% up front with the balance over time. Uh, in terms of the earnout period, we've seen them as short as 18 months. That's rare again, and that might be for that situation where there's a small earnout because someone has exited the business, and we've seen them as long as six or seven years. Typically, I would say it's probably in the three to five year time band, but again, it depends on the situation at hand. In terms of form of consideration, I would say, you know, in the, this um, in these uh, number of years where it was uh, a, a low interest rate environment, cash has really been king. So we've seen more demand for and more payment of cash as a form of consideration. Um, that's changing, and it's changing because there are more advisors acquiring other advisors too, where they're really trying to build up their bench or really trying to build a regional platform or a national platform. And we're seeing a lot more form of consideration in uh, a security at the combined company level. So it could be an LLC interest, it could be stock in a public company. So there are different uh, securities that may be available, but we are definitely seeing more of that. 
The balancing act there is that if I don't, if I'm going to take stock as a form of consideration, and if I don't take enough stock or member interests, then I won't get a tax deferral on that equity component. So I may, let's just say I took 20% in stock and 80% in cash, you're actually going to have a tax bill on the stock portion as if you sold it and went out and bought the security. So you need to be mindful of the ability to maintain a tax deferral if you're going to take something in an equity form of consideration. What, what percentage do you have to be at to, uh, in order to be able to retain that, that tax benefit? I'm not tax counsel, nor do I play one on TV. But that being said, the threshold tends to be around 40%. In the, the olden days, I would say people always looked at a 50-50 cash stock to ensure the deferral. But now it's, it's probably as low as 40%. But I will say consult, consult your accountant or your good tax counsel on that. Okay. Well, that just gives us a range of, of what the issues are. We often hear about the term preferences. Um, and I think that's sometimes, I think for people who are selling to very experienced buyers, they get a little nervous about that when I talk to them. Tell me a little bit, what, what, what are preferences and how should advisors uh, understand them and uh, be prepared to uh, either negotiate with them or, or understand what, how that's going to can help them? A preference is effectively a priority claim on the cash flow of the business. It's not necessarily a negative if you see someone in their proposal from buyer to seller show up with a preference. It could be somebody who is more financially bent that is taking a minority stake in a business that they don't control and they're not active in. So invariably, I need to know that I'm going to have some threshold of return and it may be a cumulative preferred that essentially, you know, I'll take my pro rata interest, but I'm always entitled to a certain threshold. And if for some reason you can't pay it to me in a given year, it doesn't mean that I'm going to put pressure on the business, but you owe me that preference before you take your pro rata share out. Um, So it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it comes back to the level of control that somebody can exert over the business. If I'm buying a majority stake in the business and I have control and I have certain rights and I would like to put some leverage on the business and I would like to add a preference, that to me will feel like two layers of obligation for the management team. So it almost feels like a leverage buyout and we're subjecting the go forward management team who might not have sold everything to a scenario or a structure that is, uh, could be very strenuous, certainly in a, a, a time of market upheaval. So you have to find some balance in that. Sometimes people will offer a, a um, higher multiple, uh, the purchase price, if they can get some kind of preference on the uh, cash flows of the business or priority claim on the uh, cash flows of the business, that comes back to balance as well. So if I'm the guy selling, and I want the highest valuation, then sure, hey, we're willing to accept that preference. But if I'm exiting the business, I'm really sticking it to my partners by leaving them with a claim that may or may not be fair for them, depending on how they bought into the business and do they still have to pay off some of their their ownership that they bought into, or are they trying to accumulate um, more ownership? It may be a little bit more challenging for them. 
Wow, you're really raising some very, very good points on the just how strategic structuring can be and how important it is to to understand what you want and to get it right. My last area in this then is just could be could, the whole area of, of governance and control and changing roles as firms combine. Can you say a little bit about that within the deal structure and, and what you tend to see or what advisors should understand? Governance is, is a critical element to think about. And this is one of those topics that should be addressed in the term sheet. So you and I joked previously about um, what do people need to understand before they really conclude they have the basis for a transaction. And often people forget to address the governance piece. Um, And it's going to change depending on the type of deal that you're looking at. So if I'm looking at a minority stake, someone's going to take a minority stake in my business, I'm probably offering up minority rights to that party. I'm still going to run the business. My team is still my team. Um, We'll probably have some constraints around how we spend above certain thresholds or make material hires. But we're still doing our thing, and we're still running the way we've always run for the most part. If I'm selling majority to someone else, there may be um, a board structure and format that has voting rights that are in somebody else's court. And it is something where we're going to run on a day-to-day basis, as we have. But in terms of material, strategic initiatives, annual budgeting, key hires, acquisitions, taking on leverage, we're going to have to make a proposal to the board. The board collectively is going to have to agree that that makes sense. And frankly, the voting partner is going to have to agree in particular, which is no longer the management team. Now let's take a scenario where we're combining with someone else and um, we are not the majority team on the go forward basis. My role may change dramatically and I may be perfectly okay with that. But if I've been a CEO for a long time and I'm gonna fold into a firm that's 10 times larger than uh, mine is, I really need to spend the time thinking through, well, how does my role change? How do we interact with one another? Do any of my partners or do I have a seat on your board? Do I get to participate in some of that governance and, and the level of decision making at the top? Or does it change really radically? And I'm now just an employee of a business if I've sold out, let's say, 100%. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because we have a lot of clients who have um, become entrepreneurs and they've concluded that my passion is really around finding and managing clients. I really haven't enjoyed the business building exercise So I may be perfectly okay with that level of governance participation. On the flip side, if I worked for someone else for two years before launching my business and I've been running my own business for 40 years, maybe I have a different perspective on the level of control that I'm willing to accept uh, that somebody else has over my team. Um, So that's a really, really critical topic to examine long before you get to the purchase agreement or before you think you're about ready to sign off on that uh, deal. So there is a lot to structure then. It's not just about what's the multiple and, and, and what's the dollar amount I might receive. It's, it's balancing both. And I think you've raised some very insightful elements. As a matter of fact, for our audience too, I encourage uh, if you, as a starting point to uh, consider 
reading Liz's book that she wrote with her husband called The Art of M&A Valuation and Modeling. Um, it's, a, it's a great read and I think gives you some good practical understanding of how to get started. What about the area of documentation? You know, I think in the past, I think I've talked to advisors where a simple term sheet kind of made it pretty clear and they executed on that. But it seems like now that, like you said, you know, some of these documents can be more than 90 pages. What should advisors understand and expect in the area of documentation? Oh, boy. Well, it really does start with the term sheet or letter of intent. I have been brought into numerous situations where people think they have a handshake on a deal only to find out that they've got a one-page framework as their quote-unquote term sheet, and it isn't remotely close to having uh, the basis for a deal that gets documented. So the term sheet really, let's, let's just call it the term sheet, it's, it's really the basis for the transaction. And that's the first important document that you should spend considerable time making sure you've vetted. That will address structure and value, form of consideration, financing requirements. Are there closing considerations that we need to be mindful of? What are their approvals? Um, what's the post-closing governance going to look like? Is there any integration? What, back to your point on governance, um, what are the roles and responsibilities? How do we participate? What are the anticipated contracts that we'll also be subject to? Does it include operating agreements, employment agreements? Are there additional incentives for non-key owners or other employees who are not shareholders of the business? What are the due diligence requirements? What are the balance sheet considerations that I have to contribute at closing? So that really starts to frame out that purchase agreement or stock purchase agreement. It could be an asset purchase agreement or a stock purchase agreement. What that looks like really keys off of that term sheet. So if we have a thoughtful um, and pretty developed term sheet, that makes the documentation process much easier. Um, Doesn't mean it's a snap, but at least it gives good counsel the chance to start with something to frame out the deal. And the first pass on, and this is back to why some deals go um, bump in the night and you can't get them back on the rails, we try to tell our clients that the first time you see that purchase agreement, it's not going to be perfect. And the, the person on the other side taking the lead on drafting, which is a big responsibility uh, to take uh, uh, the pen on drafting a document, and it won't be perfect. If it's not perfect on the first pass and they miss some of the terms in the term sheet, the goal is to make sure you vetted it. You can add your comments. You can make sure it's fulsome. But really, um, the basis was that term sheet. Um, There are going to be a lot of legal elements, a lot of requirements, a lot of representations and warranties that you have to make about the business. Most of them are very standard, but they seem scary. So do you have the right to convey the ownership in the business to some additional party? Are there any potential litigation pitfalls that you've not represented? If you've represented yourself well, while it will be embodied in the document, there is language that should make you comfortable that, yes, I've read it, it seems onerous, but I've told them everything I know. There's nothing I don't know. They've diligenced everything. But it it really can seem quite scary on the first pass. You know, one of the things I I 
say to advisors who are trying to navigate this space is how important it is to bring on a um, you know to bring on advisors like yourself to help them through this process attorneys bankers such as yourself transition consultants and so forth how should someone evaluate uh, the right advisors to bring on board so that they put themselves in the best position and also it helps them you know to to navigate kind of anticipated pitfalls and and risks that they're just going to run into so how do they how do they evaluate the right advisors uh, I think in terms of the advisor, it should be someone with whom you feel comfortable. It is a very personal relationship running through that process. And the first level of gauging an advisor is, this is, is this somebody that you can really trust in? So it, we do become a trusted advisor. And uh, there are a lot of wonderful advisors out there with great experience, but you do want to feel comfortable with your advisor. And you want to be prepared to tell them everything they know to do a good job on your behalf. You need to vet their level of experience. There are uh, people who work all up and down the spectrum of sizes and complexities of uh, advisory firms. You want to make sure that the advisor you've selected really understands the nuances of your business, the size threshold of the transaction is appropriate, and they really have enough experience to carry the deal uh, across the goal line. You know, there are a lot of people who are great at um, saying the right buzzwords. You need to check references. You need to look at the deals that they've done, and I would ask about deals that failed and see if you can talk to somebody that um, worked with this advisor in particular, but they didn't get the deal over the goal line, see what they have to say about that. If I've done my job well, even if uh, the client concludes that they're not gonna transact, they should still be willing to speak uh, to the work that we've done and how we interacted with them during the process. I think that's critically important. I will give this, um, I I guess I'm gonna uh, make a case here for the advisor, no matter who you hire, don't be cheap. Do not try to nickel and dime your advisor down to nothing. So think about this, you sell your house and you pay five to 6% for someone who comes over, opens the door and says nice things about your house. You're selling a $10 million house, you're gonna pay 6%. You know, you're talking about paying an advisor a couple percent. And I know so many of them in the marketplace, we kill ourselves for our clients for a couple of percent. So do not squeeze your advisor, they will earn every nickel. I'll give you a case in point. I stepped into a a situation with a firm that had an offer in hand. When we started, the offer was at 50 million. They ended up uh, not transacting with this firm, but um, we did source a buyer, and the valuation for the firm was $120 million. So I like to think that added $70 million was worth a couple of points to me uh, relative to the net value that I left you with. So please treat your advisors fairly. Great advice, and I've heard that, uh, that scenario from a number of your uh, colleagues in the industry as well. A major objective of the Fidelity M&A Leaders Forum, of which you're a part, Liz, is to help educate the independent advisor on M&A process and strategy. So what final words of advice do you have for our audience in this area? I would say be prepared. There's an expression, chance favors the trained mind. 
and if you do your homework up front, and there are a lot of wonderful resources, Scott, that you guys have prepared for your advisors and you keep on a, a virtual shelf, leverage those resources. Make sure that you're ready for the process. Do your homework. I would also say this is not a race. It's a marathon, so pace yourself. But we did talk about a sense of urgency. Uh, you need to commit to the process. There are always times where you need to pull back from the process, and if it's not the right deal, don't do it. But you wanna make sure you um, engage, you continue to maintain that momentum, and you understand every facet of the deal that you're signing up for. Liz, one of the areas that I think I hear a lot about in this industry that everyone talks to us, that I think is very unique to our space is how important the culture is, especially in many of these uh, smaller and boutique environments. And, and I know advisors really want to sustain that. Uh, what, what do you see as the important, or are the important elements around culture as you think about M&A and bringing firms together? Really, it's thinking through, do we fit together? We may like each other and we may enjoy sharing time, but if we don't see the world the same way in terms of how we deliver service, how we treat our employees, how we compensate our employees, really the mission that we bring for a clientele, we're not a fit. It's a square peg in a round hole. So making sure that we've really thought through who are we and how do we deliver what we do for the client and how do we operate uh, as our culture, we really need to find somebody who shares that vision, shares those goals so that we can make sure that when we're committing to the culture collectively that it won't be disruptive on the employee base or the clients. Clients see it if it's a misfit. Clients will see it first and they'll see it first because you'll be losing employees and employee turnover invariably um, leads to client turnover. So making sure there's a fit uh, is just so critical because as we've said, this is an intangible asset and it's really made up of people. So the people fit is paramount. Well, that's great. Well, I'm going to go back to our, the opening of our conversation where you said one of the exciting things about the time now is our times now is uh, the, the high degree of optionality available to advisors around what they can do with their businesses, what kind of partners and buyers uh, are out there and the business models that they can uh, create or become a part of. I want to say thank you for kind of enlightening us much more on the process. I think this is a very exciting time for advisors. And Liz, you've done a tremendous job of of giving us some insight uh, to think about uh, as we move forward and see the independent wealth management industry continue to evolve. So thank you. My pleasure. Elizabeth Nesvold, founder and managing partner at Silver Lane Advisors. Well, that's it for us on this episode of Future Ready through M&A. I'm Scott Slater, and we're Future Ready. Future Ready Through M&A is a production of Fidelity's Clearing and Custody Solutions with help from Collective Next. Got a question or a comment? Get in touch at fidelitymainsights at fmr.com. Any reproduction, transcription, or rebroadcast of this content are forbidden without explicit permission. The content provided herein is general in nature and is for informational purposes only. This information is not individualized and is not intended to serve as primary or sole basis for your decisions as there may be other factors you should consider. Fidelity's Clearing and Custody Solutions does not provide financial or investment advice. You should conduct your own due diligence and analysis based on your specific needs. 
Unless otherwise disclosed to you in providing this information, Fidelity is not undertaking to provide impartial investment advice or to give advice in a fiduciary capacity in connection with any investments or transactions described herein. Fiduciaries are solely responsible for exercising independent judgment in evaluating any transactions and are assumed to be capable of evaluating investment risks independently, both in general and with regard to particular transactions and investment strategies. Fidelity has a financial interest in any transaction that fiduciaries and, if applicable, their clients may enter into involving Fidelity's products or services. The third-party providers listed herein are neither affiliated with nor an agent of Fidelity and are not authorized to make representations on behalf of Fidelity. Their input herein does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information was provided by the third-party providers and is subject to change. The content provided and maintained by any third-party website is not owned or controlled by Fidelity. Fidelity takes no responsibility whatsoever, nor in any way endorses such content. There is no form of legal partnership, agency affiliation, or similar relationship among an investment professional, the third-party service providers, and Fidelity Investments, nor is such a relationship created or implied by the information herein. Third-party trademarks and service marks are the property of their respective owners. All other trademarks and service marks are the property of FMR LLC or its affiliated companies. Fidelity Institutional Asset Management, FIAM, provides registered investment products via Fidelity Distributors Company, LLC, and institutional asset management services through FIAM, LLC, or Fidelity Institutional Asset Management Trust Company. Fidelity Clearing Custody Solutions Registered Trademark provides clearing, custody, and other brokerage services through National Financial Services, LLC, or Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, members NYSE, SIPC, 200 Seaport Boulevard, Z2B1, Boston, Massachusetts, 02210. Copyright 2018, FMR, LLC. All rights reserved. 848006.18.0.